Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this privilege, this honor of gathering together as family. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to go out as our Lord and Savior has commanded us as individuals to spread the good news about himself. And thank you for giving up two of our own to go overseas to India to do that very thing, to fulfill the Great Commission, but also, Father, for their safe return. We are so very grateful for Michael and Scott, for all that they've done uh, representing your son. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that <clears throat> can't be with us this evening due to illness or what have you. Uh, we pray that they know we're with them in spirit and that we desire them back with us for the sake of fellowship and encouragement. Your will be done, of course. We also pray for those that are still lost in this world, Father, that we might be given the opportunity to evangelize them, especially given the season and the opportunity to come together with such a variety of individuals that maybe we don't otherwise see. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Again, uh, part four of practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. As you know, that's a ripoff from Holy Scripture. Um, but nonetheless, the Spirit's had us focusing our attention on two key words, obedience and practice, up here on the board. This is from Sunday's message, obedience and practice. There's no such thing as obedience that isn't put into practice because that is what it means to obey. God says, be a doer. The Word of God says, be a doer, not just a hearer. So you can give a lot of lip service, is what the Spirit's been teaching us about obedience. Um, but the reality is, as the Bible articulates it over and over, is there's no such thing as obedience that isn't put into practice. Otherwise, it's nothing more than lip service, something God despises. And we looked at uh, several passages, Matthew 7, 17 to 27, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, 1 John 3, 16 to 24, James 2, 14 to 26, and 2 Timothy 2, 15. The key to understanding what the Spirit's been saying here is recognizing the criticality of good definitions. And so we hear words like obedience and practice. Um, and if we sit down under the wrong um, definitions, even together, we can sort of butt heads or we can come out at the other end of a conversation confused or even frustrated with each other. And so... Uh, we certainly don't want to be frustrated with God, the holy God of the universe. So much of what the Spirit said on Sunday on this topic was that we have to understand and recognize the criticality of good definitions. Remember back at, not that long ago, we had, you know, what is good and who gets to define it? What is repentance? Who gets to define it? We had almost like a several series on what is for the sake of, and, and obviously entwined, intertwined in there, if you would, uh, was the basic premise that we needed to have good definitions, the generic 
message from the Spirit in each one of those series was we have to have good definitions. We have to go to Holy Scripture to find good definitions. We don't get them off any form of media. We get them from Holy Scripture. And so God the Holy Spirit has been really pushing this again uh, this past week, the idea of good definitions. And I was thinking about it just to help you out. Think about it this way. If I tell you, say, uh, this Burt's Bees right here, most of you can see it, right? Um, if I tell you this lip balm is the color red, it's yellow if you can't see that far, right? If I tell you that's red and then I proceed to tell you um, the red kind by far is my favorite kind, and I'm holding this up, the red kind is my favorite kind. What's the first thing you'd likely say to me? It's not red. It's yellow. Right? That would be the first thing you'd say. This, is, this red kind is my favorite kind. You'd say, ah, excuse me, that's not red. That's yellow. But what if someone else comes along and I say, without showing my lip balm, my favorite Burt's Bees is the red kind. And it just so happens that there actually is a red version of Burt's Bees. I don't know, but let's suppose there is. What have I actually inadvertently communicated? What have I actually, though inadvertently, communicated? This other person thinks my favorite Burt's Bees is the real red kind, when in all actuality it's the yellow kind that is my favorite. I'm just confused about the definition of red and yellow. And so when my birthday comes around and they buy me my favorite Burt's Bees, well, it may make for an awkward moment. Because I might say, that's not my favorite. I wouldn't, but just saying. The point I'm trying to make is that definitions are absolutely key in any conversation, especially spiritual ones. Of course, the greatest example is with the gospel of Jesus Christ. For how often do we hear false gospels? How often do we hear false gospels? And supposing that that's the case, what do we make of, say, Mark 16.15? Go there. Go to Mark 16.15. So let's suppose the case is that there are false gospels out there. And there are so-called Christians you know, peddling it. What do, we, what, what do we make of Mark 16, 15 then? If we can't get our arms around good definitions for the gospel. Mark 16, 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. So what if someone who reads this command has the gospel ill-defined? What if someone who reads this command has the gospel ill-defined? Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. What are the ramifications if this is true, if someone has the gospel defined wrong? What are the ramifications of Jesus' words in Mark 16.15 then. Let me state this more generically up here on the board. 
guarding against perversion. Guarding against perversion. Remember, we're talking about uh, obedience and practice. We're still here. But the Spirit's basically setting up a framework on the topic of good definitions. Guarding against perversion. If something is ill-defined, it is bad. Anything that derives its meaning from it is also bad in some meaningful way. It's like a bad root system. If the root is bad, then so is whatever it supports. Again, guarding against perversion. If something is ill-defined, it is bad. Anything that derives its meaning from it is also bad in some meaningful way. It's like a bad root system. If the root is bad, then so is whatever it supports. Now go to Matthew 7, 17. Matthew 7, 17. So this is what uh, is so very important about definitions. Because the doctrines that we cling to actually depend on our definitions. Like the Great Commission, the doctrine of the Great Commission. Go out and spread the gospel to the four corners of the earth. Well, what if you have the gospel wrong? <laughs> kind of messes up the Great Commission. Matthew seven seventeen. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Did we not do these things? Did we not go about and do these things? Did we not, quote, obey? Did we not actually practice things? Those are our two key words. Did we not obey? Did we not? Well, he's saying, well, maybe, maybe your definitions are wrong. Maybe your kind of obedience is garbage. What does he say? And what about your practice? Verse 23. And then I will declare to them, here's his response, I never knew you. I never knew you. You can't obey me because we don't know each other. Depart from me, you who what? Practice lawlessness. Oh, you're practicing something, but your definition of practicing is wrong. You practice lawlessness. Because they had terrible definitions for good things, their entire religion was something ungodly. Their entire religion was something ungodly. They would tell you that the kind of obedience that God was looking for was just going through the motions, religiously. They would say the practice that they're doing was their kind of practice. But Jesus called it lawlessness. So they had terrible definitions for good things. And I was thinking about this. If you think about the types of messages, now just think big picture and the, the style, if you would, of God the Holy Spirit from this pulpit. If you think about the types of messages the Spirit gives us, they are very often given to establish good definitions. Very often they're meant to establish in your soul 
sort of groundwork, good definitions, probably so, to couple that with you going and reading your own Bible at home. So that when you go home and do that good work, you have good foundation to work from. When you read certain, you know, say you read the word sanctified in the Bible, or just the, the gospel, if, if you have a bad definition, the, the meaning of the passage is going to change for you. If you have good definitions, then it makes total sense. Things start to clear up. And that's, if you look at the what he's been doing over the past, I'd say three years or so, it's really going back in, in making sure we have solid definitions for things like the gospel, for things like sanctification, all these uh, things. What is good? What is repentance? Where is repentance regarding the gospel itself even? If you notice, that's what he's been doing. So these messages over the past few years are often to give us good and establish good definitions for the doctrines we find in the Bible. Why? Because Satan and the kingdom of darkness have been masterful at achieving his end goal, as Paul referred to up here on the board, 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, to my previous point, what we notice if we're paying close attention to the Spirit's let's call it his style, if you would, or his approach with us, is that he has spent a lot of time ensuring our baseline definitions are correct. And I love it. I love it. Because that gives me comfort as your shepherd that you can go read your Bible and be comfortable in doing so. I know for a fact by you all telling me that you're way more comfortable now than you've ever been on your own reading your Bible. There was a time some of you would say that you were almost afraid to read your own Bible. You didn't think you were um, qualified. And that's garbage. That's garbage. And so I think a lot of what the Spirit's been doing is sort of tooling us, and in some of your cases, retooling you to be able to spend quality time with God the Holy Spirit while reading your Bible. And that's a beautiful thing, truly a beautiful thing. And I was reflecting on the nature of good definitions in conversation. Um, I have personally been a part of countless spiritual conversations where disagreements have taken place over some doctrine in the Bible. It doesn't matter what the doctrine is, just some doctrine, you, you choose. But I've been on countless spiritual or in countless spiritual conversations where these disagreements have taken place over some doctrine in the Bible. And no resolution was found because the ones partaking in the argument weren't insightful enough to compare definitions. In other words, they were arguing about stuff, but they each held to different definitions about said things. And nine times out of ten, it seems that if people can agree upon underlying definitions, fruitful conversations can occur. However, if nobody takes the time to step back 
and suggest a comparison of underlying presuppositions and definitions, everyone remains in a stalemate situation, frustrated. That's what I've seen. Why? Because people have different definitions about this word or that word. Which is truly tragic, because most of the time, people are actually, most of the time, or I should say a lot of the time, in my personal experience, people are actually often thinking the same thing, but their ability to communicate is frustrated by disjoint definitions. That's what I found. We're actually saying the same thing. I've had these conversations with other pastors who might disagree with me on something, and I say, do you realize we're saying the same thing, right? It's just your definition for this is different than mine. And it may not even be um, a biblical a biblically um, originated term. Just they're here and they're talking using this language here and I'm over here using this language, but we're saying the same thing. And if you just learn to step back and look at uh, what's actually being said instead of clinging to words that might be um, malformed in terms of definitions, you might find agreement there. Maybe you won't, though. I don't know. But the idea is that you need to get to definitions, presuppositions. It's sort of like a German mechanic um, who uses metric systems. A German mechanic coming to old school America to work on an American-made product. He or she would show up with metric tools, but the car uses the old English tools, like, you know, three-quarters and, you know, three-sixteenths and stuff like that. I don't know why they did that, but it's goofy. It's not as if the German mechanic doesn't understand how, say, an engine works. That's not the case at all. Matter of fact, he probably knows as well, sometimes better than the American, how an engine works. So the theory's there. The concepts are uh, solidified. So it's not as if the German mechanic doesn't understand how an engine works, but he can't even borrow a wrench from the American mechanic because he doesn't even know what to ask for. Two quality mechanics, possibly. You get the point. There is a resolution to this problem, and it is analogous to the one the Spirit's making here with us at a spiritual level. The German mechanic has to learn the English system so that he can have fruitful discussions with the American mechanic. That's it. It's not like they're saying, oh, I think a combustion, internally combustible engine works this way, and you think it works that way. And blah, 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 blah. Or I think it, you know, screws turn this way, and I think they turn that way. It's not like they're saying that. They're literally on the same sheet of music, but they don't communicate very well because they get different definitions on things. And they might even be superficial. And I found that to be true many times. And it's a shame. But the resolution, if you would, is that the German mechanic has to learn English so he can have fruitful discussion while working on at least American product that holds to the English uh, standard. If he refuses, they won't be able to work effectively together on the vehicle, and eventually they will become frustrated with each other and part ways. Meanwhile, the vehicle sits there still broken. That's how I see so many spiritual conversations go down even among Christians. 
because most Christians speculate about the doctrines in the Bible rather than researching and learning by reading their Bible. People show up with mismatched definitions because everybody's speculating. And you know how it is, don't talk, what is it? Don't talk religion or politics, right? Why is that? Because most people that talk religion are idiots. They don't even know what the heck they're talking about. They don't even have good definitions down. So you don't go sparring with an idiot, right? Because you're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to talk about something that's at this level when this level is garbage. That's why, as a habit nowadays, whenever I have conversations about my faith, I never let the conversation progress too far without firmly establishing presuppositions and definitions. I never let it get too far. I say, hold up. What do you mean when you say this? Hold up. What do you mean when you say that? That's what I want to know because I'm not going to talk about this that's dependent and is a derivative of this, this, and this. If this, this, and this, we hold different definitions for. What, the, what good is it talking about this thing if we can't get by this thing? And so many people, they're slack or lazy or ignorant. I don't know what the heck. I'm not trying to be offensive. But they don't do this exercise. They just want to hear themselves. You know, you know how it is. A lot of Christians just want to hear themselves talk. You know how it is. Um, but if you really want to resolve the problem, if you really want to have a good dialogue about God with a guy like me or any of you, I suppose, we got to get our definitions right. We've got to agree upon some building blocks because I don't want to talk to you if you're way over there and I'm way over here. We're never going to find common ground. This is why Jesus was getting at. Go to Matthew 7.24. You there? Matthew 7.24. <clears throat> Therefore, everyone who hears implies good definitions because someone is actually paying attention. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. What's the implication there? What's the supposition? That you hear them and you act upon them in the right way. That you listened to him. You just didn't hear what you wanted to hear. Ever met anybody, it's probably you, <laughs> that reads their Bible and, and, and interprets it the way they want to interpret it? They hear what they want to hear. They read what they want to read. They go with it. They look for, um, you know, they look to prove what they already believe is true. And that's, you know, remember, be diligent to show yourself, you know, this whole thing, to present yourself uh, from uh, 2 Timothy 2.15 from Sunday. They're not diligent. They're not humble. The assumption here, though, is that everyone who hears is these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who, uh, who built his house on the rock. In other words, the baseline's very solid. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. That's the beauty of good definitions, of solid understanding, of biblical concepts. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act, this is the person who's not paying attention, who's not interested in the truth or obedience or good practice for that matter, does not act on them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And you know what? It fell and great was its fall. Just like most religious people fall. Great was its fall. Why? Because they had bad definitions. Poor understanding of truth. That's what happens when your faith is based on bad definitions. The foundation is garbage and therefore anything built above it is rendered garbage as well. So... Let's get back. All that was to amplify this point. Let's get back to the two words that precipitated this little sidebar on good definitions. And most of that should have been familiar, given that we spent a lot of time on it in the past. Obedience and practice. There's no such thing as obedience that isn't put into practice. Otherwise, it's nothing more than lip service, something God despises. As the Spirit's been reiterating since the Gospel Reload back in October, of 2015, there are those who claim to represent Christ, but they do not. They say, I am obedient, and I do practice. Don't I tithe? Don't I do this? Don't I serve? Don't I? And Christ saying, I never knew you. I never knew you. I never knew you. Aren't I the most obedient thing you've ever seen? I never knew you. Your obedience is a perversion. Your practice is a perversion. Your religion, perversion. But they look the part, don't they? They look the part. And that's the whole idea up here on the board. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 to 15 in the Amplified reads, And no wonder, since Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So it is no great surprise if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, but their end will correspond with their deeds masquerade as servants of righteousness. That would be an obedient, practicing person, in other words. But it's a masquerade. It's a facade. It's all a show. Again, there are those who claim to represent Christ, but they simply don't. It's the evidence that reveals the truth. Up here on the board, 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Let us do let us practice. Let us not just say we obey. Let us not just say we practice. And let's not practice wrongly. Again, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed in truth. The unavoidable truth is that there exists an absolute connection between obedience and practice. Assuming our definitions are good, of course. There's an absolute connection between obedience and practice. Assuming our definitions are good, of course. Obedient people are righteous. Righteousness produces good fruit. Since the root system is good, the key fruit in view is faith. And as the Bible tells us, faith bears all kinds of secondary, tertiary, etc. fruit. Things like peace and joy under pressure, for example. How many people have you met that have faith and then when difficult times come they crumble just like a house on sand why because their faith is is no good they have faith what probably in themselves probably in their own abilities because christianity to them is a feather in their cap it's not a submission see a true christian is all about submission and therefore obedience and that's where we get our strength. So says Paul, when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. 
true Christianity is about submission. It's about being weak before the holy God of the universe and saying, I'll get out of the way while you take care of things for me. While you are my strength, because it's through you I can do all things. Who strengthens me? But that's not a religious Christian's thinking, is it? They wear a T-shirt, have a cross earring and a temple and a little, you know, maybe a, a, a pendulum, a, a, what do you call it? A necklace, right? Yeah, it's a tough word. And a tattoo even. <laughs> I'm tired, trust me. I need this vacation. And they have a tattoo, right? And they got all the things that look good. And Jesus says, I don't know who you are. And the proof is, when a crisis hits, them or their family or their, their loved ones, they blow apart. Why? Because they, they were depending on themselves. Even their Christianity was about them. You understand? Their Christianity was a feather in their cap. It was, yeah, I'm religious. I'm a Christian. I'm a member of this church. I can't tell you. I'm almost, I'm almost hesitant nowadays. Leo, you broke the mold. He's like, uh oh. I'm almost hesitant nowadays to make people new members of this church. I'm not, I know we got other people. I'm just saying. Every time I make a member of a new church, I sit back for about six months and go, uh oh. Are they going to last? It's almost like they just want to be a member, and then once they become a member, they're gone. What the heck does that even mean? Why did you want to be a member? You don't think I, I'm serious. Monica will attest. It's the strangest thing. Strangest thing. That's a person who's not really looking for submission to the Lord. That's a person who's looking for a feather in their cap. I'm a member of some Christian church. Anybody ask, grammar especially at Thanksgiving, I'm a Christian. I go to this church. I'm a member of this church. Who's that about? that about Jesus and serving the Lord and having a heart and looking to lay down one's life for others? Or is that just for themselves? Is it the same old game? It's just a religion category now. See, I went to school. I got decent grades, so mom and dad would be happy with me. You know, and then I, I got married and I had two and a half kids, and so now my aunts and uncles lay off on the holidays. And then to, to satisfy grammar, I'm a Christian member at this church over here. And then I do all these little things, right? And I just kind of like put a little bow on it. Who's that about? Certainly not about others. It's certainly not about Jesus Christ. It's certainly not uh, in accordance with Jesus' heart. That's just that person being a self-absorbed jackass like they've always been. They just have more feathers in their cap now. And so they think they're even greater, just like the Pharisees. Amen? I know, this is what I'm talking about. This is what the Spirit's talking about. That's why when the pressure comes in on those people, they blow up. You can't even have a meaningful conversation with them about Christ. They don't really want that conversation. James, Jesus' brother, was very blatant about all of this up here on the board. James 2, 17 and 18. Even so, faith... Allah, faith that follows Jesus and obeys, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. The end goal is to have a faith 
a real faith that follows Jesus Christ. But if it has no works, it's dead being by itself. Again, our instigating principle has been this, obedience and practice. There's no such thing as obedience that doesn't put into practice, that isn't put into practice. Otherwise, lip service. That was what we spent a fair amount of time on on Sunday, 2 Timothy 2.15. I alluded to this earlier. Be diligent in humility to present yourself, receive a soldier's orders, approve to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Be diligent to present yourself, accurately handling. You have humility, practice, obedience, if you would, and then practice. Be obedient. Be diligent to present yourself. That's what it means to be obedient. Accurately handling. That's what it means to put into practice. Can't handle something you don't have a handle on. That was the key message from Sunday. As the Spirit so plainly stated on Sunday, some of us have become complacent. Up here on the board. Proverbs one thirty two, For the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. You know who you are if you've become complacent. You know who you are if you've become complacent. But this is what the Word of God says, the complacency of fools will destroy them. Ask yourselves, was Jesus ever complacent? Was Jesus ever complacent? Do the words follow me? apply to you today? And if you answered yes, and you should have, then you must follow Jesus' lead and not become complacent. Do you recall that Jesus learned just like you are this moment? Do you recall that Jesus learned? Go to Luke 2, verse 40. Luke 2, verse 40. Jesus was not complacent, ever, and he said, follow me. Luke 2, verse 40. <clears throat> Luke 2, 40 says, the child, this is young Jesus, continued to grow and become strong increasing in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him increasing in wisdom that means Jesus learned imagine that Jesus was never complacent he was a learner a lifelong learner and that same learner said follow me if you follow a learner then you become a learner right Model yourself after me. We call ourselves Christians, right? Christ, you know. Shouldn't we model ourselves after his behavior? Well, what did he do? He learned. He studied the word of God. Jesus knew what we learn today through the writings of Paul, for example. Go to 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. What did he study? What did he learn, by the way? Did he watch Oprah? Obviously, there was no Oprah back then, just for the record. No, seriously, did he watch, uh, I don't know, 
Did you go down to the, the, the festival and learn what love looked like from, from stage actors? Did you learn about integrity? Did you learn, what did he learn about? Did he learn about God by playing uh, you know, dice in the streets? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Righteousness in its base form is another word for obedience. You know what I'm saying? The obedient person is righteous. Righteousness is arrived at through obedience because God has a will and he's always right. And it's how we orient to that will, a.k.a. obey. That's what obedience means. We obey, we orient to God's will. He's the holy God of the universe. That's what it means to be right, because he's perfectly right on every point and everything. So the only way we can be right or righteous, in other words, is to obey and to join him on the perfect vector that he's on. That's all obedience is. To enjoin with God on what's right. That's why we have a conscience. That's what convicts us of right and wrong. God the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to convict the heck out of your conscience because what you're doing is either right or wrong. Right means oriented to God. Wrong means disoriented to God. How does he do that? Does he knock on your door at night? Does he meet you at, when you're on your knees? No. Here's where he meets you, right here. He says, I'm going to train you in righteousness. That's what this is for. Isn't that what we just read? That's what it's God breathed. All scripture is inspired. God breathed by God, right? Why? For training in righteousness. How do I get oriented to God? How do I get on that right vector? Read your Bible. That's how. Pastor Ed doesn't have enough time with you. I mean, there's a lot of pages in here, right? I could probably, if I, the, the rate I read publicly and I had to read this from end to end, we'd be here for the next 20 years, maybe. I don't know. I only have an hour with you. I don't know how long it'll take. You know what I mean? I'm not that slow of a reader. But you know what I'm saying, right? It would take a very long time. By the time we're done, we're like, what do we first read anyways? You have to read on your own. You have to be trained in righteousness. You have to learn what it means to orient to God, to obey. And when you get that truth inserted in your soul, obey. For real. Like, follow it. If he says this is right, then do it. If it's wrong, then don't do it. God is not mocked. Do you understand? You reap what you sow. If you're complacent, you, have a, uh, you, you lack fruit. If you're obedient, you get righteousness. And there's that peace that comes with righteousness. And joy, as we've learned, that comes with righteousness. All based on obedience. Because that's what righteousness is. And that's what the Word gives us, training in righteousness. It says it right there in Scripture. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Why? Because God wants you actually to be right with Him to go out and do good things. To bring glory to Him. <laughs> you don't bring glory to God if you sit in a, an ivory tower somewhere and pontificate. And you don't meet with God getting drunk. Do you realize that's Ephesians uh, 5, dissipation? That's what that was all about. Remember the context? I taught you this a couple years back. That was the context. That there were a lot of people in, during that time that thought they would get closer to God. You know when you get that little buzz going, you're like, I feel kind of euphoric. They're like, it must be God. No, it's not. It's you being getting drunk. 
But people would think that that little thing that was going on when he started getting buzzed was getting closer to God. And that's when they would start their conversations. That's the worst time to start a conversation about God because you're dissipated. So says Holy Scripture, and that's what Ephesians 5.18 says. Do not be dis- drunk with wine. That's dissipation. Be filled with the Spirit because they compete, you see. There's your context. That's why you don't do that thing. You don't get godlier by getting drunkier. It's not a word. Drunker, right? You don't get closer to God by um, supposing some other thing that makes you feel good can supplant this. Actual training in righteousness. Imagine if the U.S. Army came out, okay, we're going to drop all training programs. You ready? We're going to train our troops for the next 10 years for the next ongoing wars by getting them drunk every day and letting them sit around campfires and eat MREs. And they can pontificate about how best to fight the enemy. Which one do you think is going to work? Which one's a better training regimen? You tell me. Why was that any different in the Word of God? But yet you might be shocked. You might be shocked how many people pontificate about God over a few drinks. And they think they're making progress. And they're not. It's training in righteousness right here. Let's take pause now. If the man or the God-man, Jesus Christ, studied Holy Scripture, I have to ask you, what about you? If the God-man, Jesus Christ, we just read that, studied Holy Scripture, what about you? Here's up here on the board. Jesus studied. Ask yourself, if studying Holy Scripture was the method Jesus used to learn truth, increasing in wisdom, as Scripture says, Luke 2.40, then what might we learn from his example? I mean, he's perfect. He was, he's, he's, he's perfect. And he said, I'm going to learn from Holy Scripture. What about us? Jeez, that's not rocket science. So please keep all of that in mind as we press on. It's funny because we still have yet to finish our review of Philippians 4. So let's get to that now. Go to Philippians 4, verse 4. Never get tired of reading this passage. Philippians 4, verse 4. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Up here on the board, last time on this one. But in everything, this means that everything in your life should pass through the divine filter or lens of the word. As a shepherd counts his sheep under the rod, so our great shepherd accounts for every word indeed. Colossians 3.17, up here on the board. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do. Whatever you do. That's what 
obedience looks like. That's what righteousness looks like. You don't get a little um, reprieve. You don't get a little compartment in your soul that's yours. Do you know that like God doesn't have access to, that God doesn't want to have access to, like most Christians do? Well, I'm 90% of the time, and this is calculated, 90% of the time I'm a good little girl, I'm a good little boy, but it's this 10% over here, I'm going to keep this over in a little closet away from God. And I'm going to function that way. But what does the Bible say? Whatever you do, in word or deed, whatever, in everything. So some of you have to stop with the, the little, you know, maintaining this little, you know, this dual life, this dip sukos, this double-souled life. Some of you need to stop that, like right now. The sooner the better. Stop it. It hasn't worked in the past for the first 20, 30, 40, 50 years of your life. It's not going to work moving forward. There's a reason why you're sitting there right now miserable. It's because you keep disregarding the Spirit's unction in your soul. You know the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, good, bad, right or wrong. You keep ignoring them. He's saying it once again, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I love that old um, principle that kept coming back. If, if it's not bringing glory to God, whatever you're doing, if it's not bringing glory to God, what the heck are you doing? Whatever it is you're doing, if it's not bringing glory to God, because that's why he leaves you here on earth, what is it that you're doing then? That's like the great litmus test. If what I'm doing isn't bringing glory to God, then I should stop. If I'm playing these games, if I've got these little compartments, you know, that I think nobody else knows about, and I play, you know, I go, I go home at night, and, you know, from midnight to 2 in the morning, I'm like a complete pervert or something, or I'm this or that, stop it. Nobody else needs to see, but God sees. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's all, and this, don't, don't look at me. Don't look at me. This isn't about me and you. I'm not judging anybody in here. Trust me, i got my own problems. This is how you get set free, because the Word of God says, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then give thanks through Him to God the Father. Again, verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace, here it is, you see? You see? You get peace out of this deal. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and of anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Hence our series title. Practice these things. Be diligent to present yourself. Now, here's where we ended both last Sunday and the Sunday before, believe it or not, was on the idea of cause and effect, something that came out a few weeks back. Practice and cause and effect. Learn to maintain divine perspective, that which is gained from the Word by reading the Bible 
And the effect is that the God of peace will be with you, Philippians 4.9, and the peace of God will guard your hearts, Philippians 4.7. He says, practice and you get peace. <clears throat> Obey, be righteous, orient to me, and you get peace. I, didn't, I mean, I didn't write these things. This is what the Bible teaches us. Let's press on now in this marvelous chapter. Paul continues with a show of love and affection. Look at verse 10. <clears throat> but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know, also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Up here on the board, do all things. Paul likes to use this type of language because it reveals the pervasiveness of practical living in Christ Jesus. Practical living. I can do all things, there's activity there, through him who strengthens me. And that same hymn is the one who says, orient to me. Orient to my will. Obey. Take your marching orders. Be diligent to, to present yourself. Approved. You get the language. You know what he's saying. Do all things that way. In me. Through me. Paul likes to use this type of language because it reveals the pervasiveness of practical living in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.17 again says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's how you can do all things. It's not a punchline at a party. It's not in a t-shirt. You know, it's not a tattoo. It's not for everybody else to see. It's actually a reality. It's something that is real in you because you are oriented to the holy God of the universe. I mean, isn't it, is it fair to say that um, as long as no situation or nobody steals your peace, you can get through it? Isn't that kind of what it comes down to? As long as nothing or no one steals your peace, you can pretty much get through any circumstance. It's when, you, when your peace is gone. It's when your hope is fleeting. That's when people lose it. That's when people give up. That's, I would think that would be like the, the precursor to suicide even. When you have no peace and no hope, what's left? Isn't that what this is all about? Well, what's, what's presupposed in that? If there's no hope and no peace, what's the presupposition there? Disobedience? Disorientation to the holy God of the universe? That's the fact. That's the truth. That's why he says... Whatever you do and where to do, do, do all in the name of the Lord. You want to do all things through him who strengthens you? I mean, I do. It's very simple. He says, then obey me. Find the center line and stay the course. I'll just keep giving you marching orders to keep you on the course, right? I want you to go in that direction. Here's the next step. Here's the next step. Here's, your days. Here's today's marching orders. Here's today's marching orders. Here's the next day's marching orders. You don't even have to know what's a week out. Just take the orders day by day. Get up, pray, talk to me. 
Stay with me all day. Don't let go of my hand and let's go. Let's do this thing. Whatever you do. Yeah, but there's that time between 12 a.m. and 2 a.m. that I kind of want to drop your hand and go, you know, do whatever I do on the side. You know what I'm getting at? That's how, that's how the splinter comes in. Satan wants you to think that way. Satan, in many ways, would be satisfied with a good, holy believer saying, 22 hours a day I'll give to Christ, two of mine. He said, good, because I can work a lot with two hours. I can get a lot accomplished in two hours. And if you think like that, this is why he's bringing it out this evening. Trust me, I don't know what you're thinking about. Some of you are like, how does he know this stuff? Is he watching me through my windows or something? I'm really not. But God knows. And if you're convicted, you know exactly how you're convicted. It's God who sees everything. So this all takes us full circle to where we departed on Thursday, but also to a reference point at the start of this class and also throughout Go to 2 Timothy 2.15 again. 2 Timothy 2.15. Let's read it. Second Timothy 2.15. What does it say? Be diligent to present. Four words. Two Greek words, most likely. I still haven't looked it up, but I'm pretty positive it's just two Greek words. The second one is peristemi, something that we studied in detail in Romans 6. Present yourselves as instruments of righteousness. You see how that works? Present yourselves as instruments of righteousness. Take your marching orders so you can walk the center line. That's what it means to be righteous. Get your marching orders. Where do you get your marching orders? You ready? For training in righteousness. What did we learn? That's the Bible. We just read it. We just read it like 20 minutes ago. For training in righteousness, right here. Take your marching orders, right here. Be diligent to present. Again, Romans 6 says, present yourselves as instruments of righteousness. Get your orders, obey them, be righteous. Peaceful fruit of righteousness. You want peace in your life, the thing that makes you unflappable, under pressure? Do this thing. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And again, can't stress this enough up here on the board. You can't handle something you don't have a handle on. You've got to take in the word of God. You have to take in the word. That's what this is all about. If you don't, you lose sight of your first love, for he is the word. If you lose sight of him, this is where it gets real tragic, and I'm almost out of time. But this is the one that breaks my heart. Because if you lose sight of him, if you follow this out logically, you'll be lacking real love in your life. He's the most precious love you will ever know. Ever. Take the greatest love you've ever known in your life. It doesn't even compare to his love. And the love he wants you to have with him. I don't care if you if you're like you know Bill and Lois there, where well, you've been together forever and ever. 
that love doesn't even compare to his love. So if you lose sight of him, you will be lacking real love in your life. And I'm referring to what we might call transformational love. I mean, this is love that can actually, you know, move you. Get you up in the morning. Get you motivated even to lay down your life for others. Transformational love. That's not something you read on the back of a cereal box or something. You know what I'm saying? Or a romance novel on a long plane trip or something. Because that's what Scott and Michael did, I guess. They read romance novels to each other. <laughs> just hearsay, just saying. Got it from some Indian guy. <laughs> Transformational love. Love that transcends all human boundaries and otherwise useless emotions. Yeah, that's right. Love that transcends all human boundaries and otherwise useless emotions. If that's the case, then do as the Bible commands you and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You want love? You put Him on. Up here on the board, Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Again, up here on the board, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ is to put on love itself. Go to Colossians 3.12. To put on the Lord Jesus Christ is to put on love itself. It's funny how many counterfeits we'll accept in our lives before we accept the truth about love. It's funny how many times I've seen people reach and strive for love in all the wrong places, in other people, other human beings. It's a joke. Another human being is going to do nothing more than disappoint you. I'm not saying you can't find some kind of romantic love or, you know, some kind of love that's, you know, uh, reminiscent of or given to by God even. But it's not the kind of love you think it is if it's supplanting this love. Colossians 3.12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Put on these things. Beyond all these things, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. Scripture says elsewhere, put on Christ. Look around you this evening, or even on Sunday, when there's more people here, one of the greatest results of obedience is the fruit of unity. In particular, unity in the body of Christ. There's nothing like knowing that no matter how messed up work, friends, or even family can be, and we may say this this coming Thanksgiving time, no matter how messed up work, friends, or even family can be, we always have each other. 
we always have each other. And as the recurring theme has been amplifying in our souls, obedience leads to blessings, and one blessing in particular, peace. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. You see it? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. In other words, there's value in unity here. There's peace in unity. There's peace. I guarantee you, some of you are going to be up against the wall with family this Thanksgiving. And someone's going to irritate the heck out of you. And you're probably going to remember that you have a family here. You're going to remember that you have a, another family, not a blood family. A family that's going to endure for all of eternity in Christ Jesus. And that's going to give you peace in that moment where you feel like choking somebody out. Right? Right? <laughs> Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ, the word of Christ, what's that? That's right here. You ready? Here it is. Do I have to hold it up? Yep. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for preparing us for this holiday season. Thank you for, pers uh, for uh, perfectly orienting our messages so that they land this way to prepare us, Father, to keep us grounded in you and to remember that no matter what happens, Father, no matter what our celebrations look like with family, be they pure or impure, we always have each other. We always are bound by that one thing to unity, that is love. Father, a love that you provide in each one of us, a love that you've deposited to each of our accounts by faith even, Father. These are wonderful grace gifts. We're so very grateful, Father. We look forward to rejoining and fellowshipping together on Sunday. We just ask your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you.